everybody. May the 4th be with you. Um, for those Empire Strikes Back fans, I understand that today is a big day in your world. Um, so I appreciate you joining us. This is Hashtag No Limits. I am Shelly Kino, your host. And Hashtag No Limits is about people that society has placed limits upon, but who have busted through those limits. And Ophelia says in Hamlet that they, we know who we are, but not who we may be. And I believe that 100%. I also think that the best analogy of that is the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. The caterpillar literally dissolves itself into cells and reforms into the butterfly and then has to struggle to get out of the cocoon in order to be strong enough to fly and survive. That's no easy task and neither is living in a society with limits constantly being placed upon you. I have seen students in my career as a special education teacher, and I have now seen students as my um, education consultant focusing in special education business has gone that have busted through these limits. And when we have support systems with us, that is even better. Today, my guest is a professor at Adelphi University, and I'm so thankful that I came across him through an autism summit a few months back. I reached out to him and said, hey, I have this little show. Would you be willing to join me? And he graciously said yes. So Dr. Stephen Shore, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Oh, I'm good. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely. So um, just a couple of business things and then we'll get into our conversation. So for anybody who is watching in the group, No Limits, Changing the World's Perspective of Special Needs through IEPs, if you're going to comment, please make sure that you um, give StreamYard permission to post your portfolio portfolio profile picture and your name. It is a private group, so they are respectful of your privacy and want you to give them that permission. Also, if you're watching on YouTube or anywhere on Facebook, make sure to like and subscribe to this channel so that you can get all of my hashtag No Limits episodes and the Friday with Friends and anything else that I might put out there. And uh, make sure that you let us know where you're watching. If you're watching live, hashtag live. If you watch this in the replay, hashtag replay. So Dr. Shore, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Um, well, things were moving along uh, pretty typically until about 18 months uh, when I was struck with the regressive autism bomb. So um, like what happens to about 30% of us, I lost functional communication, had meltdowns, withdrew from the environment. And in brief, I became a pretty severely autistic little child. There was so... There was so little known about autism that it took my parents a year to find a place for diagnosis. Wow. And when they did, the doctor said, well, we've never seen such a sick child. You should send him to an institution. And can you give us an idea of the time frame? Like what? Oh, what yeah, years? that was 1964. Okay. So special ed law had not come into play at that point. No, no okay. special ed law. And the... Uh, uh, the uh, projection uh, for an autistic person, it, it was generally an institution and nothing much, they wouldn't be much able to do, be able to do. So uh, that's a good example of a limit that my parents Absolutely. said, no, this is not the case. And they convinced them to take me in about a year. So my parents, like we see so many parents today, they advocated on my behalf. And Absolutely. During that intervening year, 
my parents implemented what we would today refer to as an intensive home-based early intervention program. And it was a program that emphasized music, movement, sensory integration, narration, and imitation. Oh, and okay. So when we think about what my parents did, and that's just today's terminology, really what it was was just parents desperately trying to reach their kid. Right. So they first tried to get me to imitate them, and that didn't work, perhaps to a difference in mirror neurons in autistic people. So then they flipped it around and imitated me. And once they did that, I became aware of them in my environment. And they were able to smash through the limit, the artificial limit that those doctors imposed. And they got it to a point where speech began to return at age four. Okay. And so I'm presuming, because I don't have any memories of that time frame in my life, that you don't have any, or or do you have any memories from that time and that you would be able to talk about what yeah. you were feeling? Yeah, some. Well, it was very frustrating not being able to speak and uh, needing to communicate. And so when you have people who aren't able to communicate and they want, want to uh, speak or make their needs wants and known, uh, there isn't too much left, except maybe some outrageous behaviors. Right. Because that becomes the way of communicating. And so when you talk about some of these outrageous behaviors and the regression that you you experienced, um, were you given examples of the kinds of behaviors that you had, or can you remember doing certain things? Oh, yeah. I mean, it could be uh, uh, sometimes banging my head, which is a common autistic thing to do spinning around in circles, um, and rocking back and forth, pretty stereotypical autistic behaviors. Okay. So, all right. So now you've had your, uh, your time at the, the clinic or the, with the doctors, um, they've get the, your parents have advocated for you. So what was your school years like? So you're probably like I'm thinking age five, you said it was around age four that things started to return. So were you able to go to a public school or did you have to go to a private facility? Well, at age four, uh, that is when I went to that private facility for about a year. Okay. And I got reevaluated. And I guess uh, the work that my parents did had some effect because in that reevaluation, I got upgraded from psychotic and ready for an institution to just neurotic. So things were moving along. <laughs> and that sounds like a good thing. But at the same time, I am thinking how awful to have a child diagnosed that way at the age of oh. three and at the age of four. And oh, yeah. um, so kudos to your parents for wanting to, as you said, just communicate with you. And so they they worked on lots of different things. What what sort of um, background do your parents have? Like, where do you think they came up with these ideas of how to potentially reach out to you and, and vice versa? Um, I don't know, because uh, they weren't teachers or psychologists. Uh, my mother studied business, but uh, stayed at home. And my father ran a liquor store and then became a frozen foods manager. Okay. So that's encouraging, to be honest, because that that hopefully will resonate with some parents who may think, oh, I, I'm not a teacher. I don't know how to work with my child. I, I don't have a, a degree in, 
you know, any number of occupations that relate to people who work with others with autism. Um, so it, it, it probably was really just a matter of, I want to do this and I'm going to figure this out. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. It was just parents trying to reach their kid. Yeah. So once you get into, at, at any point, did you get into a public school? All right. So then it was about a year and a half of that special school and onward to regular education uh, kindergarten at age six, where I was a social and academic catastrophe. And you know what happens to kids who are different in grade school? Yes, and, I do now. And I can only imagine what it was then. Oh, yeah. So uh, fortunately, school systems are beginning to realize that bullying is not a developmental phase that people need to go through. Right. They need to do something about it. And academically, I was usually about a grade behind in most of my subjects all through elementary school. Uh, but I enjoyed going to school because what I could do is go to the library, get all the books on my favorite subjects, pile them on my desk, and then read them and take notes and copy diagrams. And, and what were your favorite subjects? Uh, some of them included space exploration, aviation, earthquakes, weather, volcanoes, dinosaurs, electricity, you know, various things like that. And when you learned those things at a younger age, that probably also made you stand out a little bit because probably most people your age weren't learning all of those kinds of things and they weren't interested in learning those kinds of things. And did that deter you at all from wanting to learn more about those things that you were interested in? No, no, I just kept after them. And my parents in a form of, I guess we could call it homeschooling, was more informal and that wasn't the intent. And from my end, it looked like whatever I was interested in, they were interested in too. So when I was interested in astronomy, they got a telescope and we'd stay up late at night. When I was interested in uh, chemistry, uh, they got me a chemistry set. And fortunately, I didn't blow up the house. <laughs> That's very fortunate, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I remember in third grade, I had a stack of astronomy books on my desk. Wow. So, taking notes, copying diagrams. And a teacher told me that I'd never learned how to do math. Oh. Well, that was another limit. Uh, but somehow I've learned just enough math to teach statistics at the university level. <laughs> just enough. Just a, yeah, just just a little, little bit. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. these days, what I find is uh, I'm seeing a transition away from uh, what I call a deficit model of autism. And the deficit model looks at autism as a series of disabilities, disorder, and deficits, and focuses on what the person can't do. And that happens in school and just about everywhere else. And even the very definition of autism, deficits in social communication, restricted interests, and so on. But if we flip it around and we use an abilities-based model and we start asking what can the autistic person do, and it would be that teacher who would find a way to use astronomy to teach mathematics. Right. And that's such a, a valid and harsh point all in the, all at the same time, because what I do now, as I mentioned, as an education consultant focusing in special education is I attend meetings with parents. I help uh, teachers write IEPs. I 
wrote hundreds, maybe a thousand mm-hmm. or more in my teaching career. And because we have that present levels of performance, academic and functional in the IEP sec, um, document, that does tend to be where our focus is on the things that the child is uh, has a deficit in or is struggling in. And I agree with you so much that if we can remind people and maybe not even remind, actually just say, look, you know, here are all of the things that this person can do. These are just a couple or a few areas where the child isn't up to other people their age as far as understanding certain things. I think that would change the mindset of so many teachers and so many administrators and our entire education system. So my question then is, if that were to be the case, if we were going to change the whole system, would we start, do you think, from the top down, meaning from the universities and how we're teaching teachers, or would we start from those that are already teaching students, or is it a combination? I think it's a combination. It's both. And it's also starting with the doctors as well. And when you say starting with the doctors, can you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, I can. So somebody, a child gets, uh, goes for an assessment and is diagnosed as being autistic. And usually the way the appointment goes is uh, the doctor talks about how their tests um, they talk about this test, that test, and something else, and these tests are consistent with uh, having autism, and these are the things that your child is going to have difficulties in, making friends, learning in school, uh, uh, shifting from one activity to another, sensory issues, or whatever it might be, and then the whole thing might end with uh, a couple of sentences on uh, possible strengths that the child has. But what if you flip the whole thing around and you still talk about the assessments and these assessments are consistent with a child who learns better through routines. This is a child who will be visually based. Uh, there, are vi- there are many visually based people who've made great contributions to society and you might even list a few. Uh, the child, if we do the following, then the child will have an easier time at making friends. So it's all going from an abilities-based approach and then treating those deficits as barriers that can be taken down by various strategies and interventions. So I think if it started there, that would be a good place to start too. Absolutely. That is, wow. Yeah, that is so true. I um, I have written a book that isn't compilation of nine different family stories. And then Mm. the 10th chapter is my own story. And the the other nine chapters outside of my own, I interviewed families who have someone in their family with a special need, or some of the chapters I actually was able to interview the student because they were old enough and Mm. they were verbal enough that they could share their stories with me. And so many of them talk about their beginning times with the doctors and getting their original diagnoses and how, and, and, and I've, in the book, there's some people with autism, there's some 
a down, uh, somebody with Down syndrome, cerebral palsy. So I have a, a, a range of, <clears throat> excuse me, abilities that I talk about in the book. And mm-hmm. um, a lot of them did refer to their their initial doctor appointments when they were given the diagnosis of whatever it was and how they were treated by medical staff and how they were so hurt that these professionals would treat them in such a way. Yeah. And so it is, it is definitely an area I think that, that is as another area that needs to be addressed and talked about. Um, so let's, so let's get back to you then. Um, so you're in third grade and you have a whole stack of astronomy books. I don't even know that I knew what astronomy was at third grade. Um, and, and so was that something that continued then for you through middle school and high school was that you were always focused on other things besides necessarily the academics that you were being taught at the time? Yeah, generally, because the teachers, teachers didn't quite know how to reach me. But at the same time, since I wasn't a behavior problem, uh, I think they just kind of uh, left me to my own devices, uh, probably for better rather than for worse, uh, given the lack of knowledge that people had on special education and autism in particular. Right. And so you said you weren't a behavior problem at that point. Um, so what was it, are you aware of at least, that changed? Because you said when you first started into school in kindergarten, you you were very behaviorally challenged. So what kind of changed for you, do you know? Or what strategies worked for you? Well, I think communication, being able to communicate. So that by the time I got into grade school, uh, my... Um, Spoken communication was about the same as everybody else's. Okay. Yeah, I think that has, well, I I mean, my philosophy is that all behavior is communication. Right. And so, I, you know, I definitely am one who believes that whatever behavior is happening, there's something behind that behavior that is directing the need for that. Mm -hmm. So, and I do, I think a lot of it is that and that's everybody. I mean, that doesn't, that's not just only for people who have autism. That's for every person on the planet, no matter what the behavior is, happy, sad, you know, um, there's always something behind that, that is needing or wanting to be expressed. And maybe, um, in a person who isn't using verbal language, the way that everyone around them is using it. That's the biggest thing is like you said, you were so frustrated trying to talk to people and, and communicate with people and they just couldn't understand you. And, and, but I'm assuming, and tell me if I'm incorrect in that, that you were understanding everything that was happening around you and being said to you and around you, you just couldn't express yourself. Is that correct? Not a fair amount of understanding. Uh, usually receptive language is better than expressive language right? Uh, for autistic people. And so I, again, I'm thinking about a couple of students in my, in my book that um, even though they were not able to tell us how they were feeling or what their needs were, because by using the same way that, that we were used to using, Mm -hmm. we could communicate with them and understand 
oh, they want this or they, they're unhappy or they're happy or right. um, because communication is more than just words. Right. And I know so many autistic people who don't speak and were so often uh, given up on as uh, too severe, too something or other, not worth bothering with. But somehow, sometimes by design, sometimes by uh, mistake, uh, they get a hold of a computer keyboard, for example, and start typing out words. And then people realize uh, this person does communicate. They just don't speak. Right. And these are people who have been given, you know, who have measured room temperature or freezing temperature IQs. Right. But once we figure out how to develop a reliable means of communication, they're just as smart as the rest of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I was usually upset if somebody was talking negatively about my students who were nonverbal around the student who was nonverbal. Because mm -hmm. I was I was always trying to be aware of the fact that just because I am not able to, or the student isn't able to speak to me doesn't mean they're not understanding what's being said to them or about them. Yeah, that's right. And I was always hoping for that for that one day when, you know, we would find a communication device that just worked on every level for the student and they were able mm -hmm. to tell us everything that they knew because I I just knew that they had so much inside of them and we just needed to find the the key to unlock whatever it was that was keeping it from coming out in a way that all the rest of us understood. Right. So I think really what it means is that it's on, it's on us, those of us who support autistic people and others with various differences. It's up to us to figure out what that reliable means of communication is. Yes, I agree. I absolutely agree. So you finished high school and was that, I'm guessing, not an easy task um, as far as socially, because socially is difficult for many people in high school, but add on to that the autism and the little knowledge about autism at the time that you went to high school. Um, but you seem to have come out of that okay. Yeah, well, actually, middle and high school, um, you don't need to be autistic to have difficulties in middle right. and high school. Right. But for me, it was actually easier because I had figured out uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, using words instead of sound effects from the environment really helped with social interaction. Uh -huh. And then two, I was able to engage in my focused interest of music. Okay. And I joined the band. And now I had a structured activity to mediate my interactions with others. So it was actually, it was actually better. And then with music, when I got so taken up with music, that I decided that I needed to learn how to play all the instruments. Oh, so the just hours, a small undertaking. <laughs> hours in the instrument closet, uh, taking them apart, putting them together, sometimes combining two or three instruments into contraptions that never should have seen the light of day. <laughs> and then when I heard that a requirement for a degree in music education was that you had to learn all the instruments, that just seemed to be the thing to do. And that's what I did when I went off to college. So what is your favorite area or your favorite instruments? Uh, well, favorite area is 
classical music okay. uh, that we roughly call classical music, but it has a number of different eras. Uh, instrument, it depends on my mood, trombone. Uh, my major instrument was trombone, although I can play the piano reasonably well, but I also play a recorder, flute. And, well, I didn't learn all the instruments, but I got it up to about 15. Wow. Well, I took a clarinet lesson, or well, not took a lesson. I, I My whole fifth grade year, I think it was, I, mm. I learned how to play the clarinet and I really quite enjoyed it and then had a bad experience just one time with my instructor. I, I was one of those students that pretty much picked it up really easily and I made a, a small mistake one time and my my band instructor just came down on me so hard and I said, I don't need this. <laughs> so yeah, really, yeah. I, I gave it up and I'm I'm kind of sad that I did because um, that would have been a, an activity that I could have continued my whole life. That's the wonderful thing about playing an instrument or singing, you know, yeah. that's different than sports. You know, that you can continue for many more years with those kinds of skills than sports skills because your body tends to wear out faster with a sports skill. Yeah, playing an instrument's a little bit easier on the body, although some people can get repetitive motion syndrome. Sure. If they don't move uh, properly when they play the right. instruments. So, so you went off to college and you had you went for a music degree? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, I got a, a bachelor's and master's and did all the doctoral coursework for a music degree. Uh, then as I, after I finished all the coursework at the doctoral level, I started getting more interested in autism. So I defected from the music school to the education school and got my doctorate in special education. Wonderful. And what would you say would have been the best lesson that you took from the music industry and your music degree into your special education doctorate? Um, I think uh, that, uh, you know, that it's important to know uh, your learning style. Can you elaborate, please? Yeah, so um, most autistic people, or I should say it's a myth that autistic people are all visual. And a lot of us are, probably most are. However, I know many autistic people who are so non-visual, they can't read a map. Mm. So what we can say is that autistic people have uh, are a study of extremes, which means the things we're good at, we're incredibly good at, the things we're not so good at, we often need a lot of support and there often isn't much in the middle. So I know a number of autistic people, a friend and colleague of mine, for example, Dina Gasner, who uh, we've known each other for about 20 years. It took me three years to convince her that she could do a doctoral degree. <laughs> and so finally she went for broke and applied to a number of schools, ended up coming to Adelphi University. And uh, she's, uh, she does excellent work. She's gotten all A's in her courses, except for one particular subject and that's mathematics. So quantitative research, statistics, those are really hard for her. She's learned a long time ago not to even think about having a checkbook. Oh. Because for her, out of sight is out of mind. Okay. And she just bounced too many checks. 
So that's an example of an extreme challenge in the math end of things, right. but extreme strength in other areas that let you be successful as a doctoral student, a researcher, and uh, that type of, those types of activities. And we see that a lot in autism, which means it's ever more important to note where those strengths are. Yes. So the autistic person who is visual, and we could substitute that for any other learning modality, kinesthetic or auditory, you know, whatever it might be, uh, they'll be so good at that, uh, they may be better than everybody else in the class. And this, this amount of skill level might be amazing. Uh, whereas at the other end, uh, the non-preferred modalities, they may be non-functional. So whereas the typical person who is, say, auditory and learns best by listening and hearing, uh, the visual sense, the kinesthetic sense are good enough to get them through life and certainly get through school and through life. But for the autistic person, those non-preferred areas, uh, they're really challenging. So that means it's ever more important to use a strength-based approach to uh, see where those strengths are and to make good use of them. And I want to have you clarify, when you say non-preferred, it isn't some cognitive thought of, I don't like to learn this way, or I don't like this task. It's within the brain that is what you're saying makes it non-preferred. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the brain, the way the brain works, uh, that modality, as with anybody, uh, it doesn't work as well as some of the others, uh, which is why we tend to favor certain modalities. Uh, but for most people, you can get by with the, uh, with the uh, weaker ones. Right. Uh, for autistic people, they may be so challenging that they're, uh, they're just not functional. And the reason I asked that question, and you probably figured it out, is that with IEPs, so often in the education system, we will hear teachers say, well, they can do it on a task that they prefer, but they don't have the focus on a task that they're not interested in, or they'll say they don't have the focus in a non-preferred task. And I just wanted to clarify that because, again, it isn't something that these students are choosing. Um, and, and I've gotten to the point in my life now when I am, am in a meeting or when I am talking to teachers about students and non-preferred tasks, I'll say, okay, we all have non-preferred tasks and we all know that we should do certain things. You know, we all know that we should eat healthy and we all know that we should stay in good health and good shape, but we don't all choose the vegetables over the vegetables with cheese or the vegetables with sauce and we don't always choose to go to the gym so if you're going to assess a skill of mine don't assess it in an area that is not a strength area yeah and that makes that makes sense uh nobody nobody builds a career out of remediated weaknesses right and we can all, like you talked about with, you know, the, the learning math through astronomy, it wasn't that you were incapable of learning math. It was that your brain's 
chosen path, maybe is a, a better way to say than preferred or non-preferred, but it yeah. means the same thing, was through those types of lessons. And obviously they worked because I don't think you would be teaching statistics at a college university level if you didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, um, uh, as for statistics, what I've found is that most statistics are, are taught badly. Really? Is what it seems like, because uh, when I needed to take statistics at the undergraduate level, um, there are all these it had a horrible reputation. If you wanted to get a D and interfere with your other courses, you took statistics. Oh. Because uh, that's just the way it was. Uh, so I was brave and I signed up for it. And very quickly I saw that I would get a D, maybe get an F. So I dropped it. Uh, I then decided that I should, uh, let's take statistics in the summer. And that way, if I do horribly and it takes up too much time, it won't interfere with any other classes. And that's what I did. I ended up getting an A because I had a good teacher. So that's what um, made it a goal of mine to figure out how to teach statistics well. So we had fun in my statistics class. That's awesome. What's the best, if you could summarize statistics into just a couple of sentences, what would be the best way to describe statistics that we use in the real world and why it's important? No, statistics help us uh, understand huge amounts of data and can be helpful in predicting things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that is that, and therein lies the problem of teaching statistics because uh, when you learn statistics, the numbers get very big, very, very quickly, which means when you're teaching the core concepts, you have to start with very small numbers, like single digit numbers. And when I taught statistics, we do each problem three times. First, we do them by hand. Uh, then we do it again on Excel. And that way, students could get practice manipulating the formulas without getting tied up with the arithmetic, which is so easy to get wrong. Mm -hmm. And then we do the problem again through a statistics package like SPSS. Awesome. So you said when you taught statistics, does that mean you're no longer teaching it? No, I'm not teaching it anymore. For a while, I taught it at, um, um, I taught it at a college uh, in Boston. Oh, okay. Emerson College. Oh, okay. I've heard of that. I, taught it, I think I taught it somewhere else too. Uh, and that's when I was teaching part-time. Now that I'm teaching full-time in uh, special education, um, uh, and since uh, uh, I guess they leave the statistics to the math teachers. <laughs> Probably, which maybe that's not the best way to do it, because maybe they're still not teaching it the way that would reach as many people as possible. It sounded like your way was much more achievable for any student, whether they were a math major or some other major. Right. And Emerson College being... Uh, basically things that aren't mathematically oriented, uh, it, it seemed to work out pretty well. That's wonderful. That's so exciting. Yeah, that was, math was never my strong suit. It I was a late bloomer, so to speak, when it came with math, because mm. I, I understand it, or I understood it good enough to get by and get through high school and college. Um, right. But at some point in life, it suddenly clicked with me, and I actually 
understood why so much of math is important and how everything worked and um, which was wonderful because then as I taught my students up to eighth grade, then I was able to help them understand in a way that I hadn't been able to understand when I was going through school. Yeah. So let's, can we talk some about Learn Autism? Yeah, we sure can, yeah. So I'm gonna share my screen here and I'm gonna pull up the Learn Autism website. Um, and I want you to go ahead and just start telling me about it before I even can pull it up here. Oh, there it is. Yeah. All right, so what is Learn Autism? Autism, Learn Autism is a, a research-based uh, online uh, resource uh, for parents uh, because uh, Hasna, Nada, and I believe that it starts with the parents. She's a parent of an autistic child, and I'm, I'm my own autistic child. And since parents spend the most amount of time with their, uh, their children, uh, that makes parents the experts on who their children are and best to know their children. So I think the best thing we can do is provide information uh, on video uh, in small um small bite-sized portions, you might say. So the videos are maybe two minutes long. Mm -hmm. And there are these uh, helpful tips and strategies and perhaps reasons why autistic people do uh, what we do. And that's the goal behind uh, Learn Autism. And to understand autism from an autistic point of view as well as a parental point of view, uh, backed by research and information from uh, qualified professionals who understand the importance uh, of the role uh, the parents play in being part of the team, an integral part of the team of supporting their autistic child. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because when I attend IEP meetings, and if I have any parents of my former students that are watching, and I, I hope I never disrespected you, if I did, please accept my apologies. You are the expert in your child. Maybe the other people at the table with you are experts in education or occupational therapy or speech language mm -hmm. or behavior, but you are the expert in your child, as Dr. Shore just said. And you are the only one that sits at that table from the first day of school, whether that's pre-K or kindergarten or even early intervention, all the way through high school that is there at every meeting. You know all the previous stuff and you know all the stuff that's happening right now. And so grasp hold of that title of being an expert in your child and speak up for your child and let this, let the people at the table know, I understand that you're an expert in your field, but my field is my child and that is my expertise. Yeah, that's right. So um, it, so you said that this is a program. So I see here on the page with the bite-sized videos that it says um, there's a three-day trial. So how oh, yeah. long of a program would this take for someone? Well, it's hard to say because there's so many little videos, uh, as you can see, uh, some of them lasting and not even a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of good information uh, about autism. Uh, so it's not like 
it's not like uh, taking a course, and I teach courses on autism. Uh, it's not like uh, taking an in intensive course for a week and getting three credits. Right. Uh, that's something different. I'm spending all semester, 15 weeks, a couple hours once a week, uh, learning about autism. Uh, so it's really a matter of taking from it uh, what is helpful to you. And I just saw a video on Mr. Potato Head, and Mr. Potato Head can be very helpful on learning parts of the body for some kids, right? many kids. So it's worth learning about, but maybe your child uh, already knows parts of their body, or maybe Mr. Potato Head scares them for some reason, so we need to find another way. And so when someone were to, if they were to register for this, what, do they get access to everything? Yeah, oh. they do. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you get access to all. Uh, there you see uh, uh, Janelle there. She's an excellent uh, teacher, um, educator of autistic people. Uh, she, she used to call herself an ABA therapist. Okay. And what I mean by that is that she learned ABA. She learned it very well. Mm -hmm. uh, but she incorporates... Uh, so many different strategies and there's so much movement and singing and excitement uh, in her in her classes that uh, you can't just call it ABA maybe it's ABA plus <laughs> so that might be a, a really good name for it and I love what you have on this front page of your website the this World Autism Awareness Month which was in April and I know we're not in April any longer let's reach for inclusion so often people think of inclusion in a very minimal way and it's so very important that we have a better understanding of inclusion and that we don't try to change the the student that has autism to fit the environment they're going into, but to fit the environment to them. Yeah, exactly. And there's so, so many times I have seen where students with autism are included, but they might be placed into a classroom that is of their typical peers but they're in the corner. How do you feel about that sort of a scenario? I know how I feel. I want to know how you feel about that. Well, I call that geographical inclusion. And that is where you have an autistic or other child with a special need. And they're sitting in the corner, often with a paraprofessional, doing something that has nothing to do with what's happening in class. And so uh, they're not engaged because for true inclusion, uh, you have engagement uh, between the, uh, the child with a disability and the rest of the students. And right. what is even more important is that both, both sides are benefiting from that engagement. Yes, that is. So it's really I couldn't have said it any better how I feel about it. That's absolutely. And I, it saddens me when I go into an IEP meeting and they talk about placement and it's, oh yeah, the child's going to be included in the class with their peers. And then you, you happen to visit or you happen to ask the parent, you know, well, how's things going? Oh, well, you know, they're sitting off in the corner I'm like that. That's not inclusion. That's not what we fought for. So no. 
I'm glad to hear that there are other people out there that think the way I do. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I know a lot of people who think that way. Yeah, and now that's another thing that we have to uh, work from within teachers that are already teaching and at the university level teaching teachers that what that yeah. better understanding of inclusion looks like and can be. So I want to give you an opportunity. I know you have um, a couple of books out. Oh, did that just jump over to, no, it didn't. Okay. I, I thought I was sharing my screen still. Um, so you have a few books, uh, says Beyond the Wall, Autism for Dummies. Um, what other books do you have out? All right. So Beyond the Wall is the first book. Uh, that's my autobiography. It uses the autobiographical structure to talk about what it's like to be autistic, uh, teaching strategies, sensory issues, giving music lessons to autistic children, and successful navigation to uh, adulthood in the areas of employment, relationships, um, continuing education, and self-advocacy. Then this, and that book has been translated into a number of languages. It was just recently translated into Bangla over in Bangladesh. Oh, wow. That's the newest. And um, uh, the next book is Ask and Tell Self-Advocacy and Disclosure for People on the Autism Spectrum. Uh, because what I found is that not much was being done about teaching autistic people to advocate. And therefore, I figured out the best way to learn how to advocate is to ask autistic people, how can we best advocate for ourselves? So I got five of my colleagues to make for six chapters, and we each contributed a chapter, uh, giving our thoughts and strategies for uh, developing skills and effective self-advocacy. So my, my contribution was uh, focusing on the use of the IEP. Hmm. involving the student in their own IEP uh -huh. to learn about effective self-advocacy. Uh, another author talked about developmental stages of self-advocacy. Somebody else talked about how to successfully uh, interact with social service agencies. Uh, so there's a lot of good information there, uh, all written by, by and for autistic people. Then there's Understanding Autism for Dummies, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's part of the For Dummies series. Uh -huh. And I figured when they asked me to do it, I figured I should probably do it because uh, otherwise somebody who doesn't know what they're doing might do it. Absolutely. So I did that. Uh, and uh, then there's uh, College for Students with Disabilities uh, written by, or I should say edited by my colleague, Pavan John Anthony and I. And we collected stories of students who with disabilities, a number of them autistic, a number with other disabilities. So we combined a powerful um, personal narratives of experiences and suggestions for success with the latest research from uh, college-based organizations that support students with disabilities. Amazing, that sounds so awesome. And, um, Involving your colleagues and involving people that are on the spectrum um, sounds very similar to how I came about getting my book completed was I interviewed those families and and uh, these are their stories in my book. So my mine is I have it right here. Um, oh, I'm going to do a shameless plug. Um, oh, it's, it's called Those Who Can't Teach. 
And like I said, it, it's true stories of special needs families to promote acceptance, inclusion, and empathy. And um, I, I, as a teacher, I'm sure you've heard the saying, and probably as someone with autism, um, you know, that those who can do and those who can't teach. Oh, yeah, I've heard that, yeah. And as a teacher, I always hated that saying. And every teacher that I know dislikes that saying. And the reason we all dislike it is because it sounds like somehow as an educator, we are less than all the other professions in the world, even though nobody could do what they would do without teachers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's how, that's yeah, how my so students true. felt. You know, that's how our families feel. Our, they're so often told you can't do this and you can't do that, or you won't be that, or you won't be this. And um, so, so I love that I was able to get people who could express what it was like for them growing up and going through their situations. And I love that your books have that as well, that you can talk about the material in your book from a firsthand experience. Yeah, well, so I think it's important to involve autistic people, and we can generalize that to people with disabilities, in everything that we do uh, in this area. So whether it's engaging autistic people in research, there's an ever-increasing number of autistic people who are doing good research, uh, either on their own on autism or collaborating, meaningful collaboration with others who are doing research on autism. And similarly, involving uh, autistic people in terms of making workplaces autistic friendly or mm -hmm. universities autistic friendly. So we're getting there. We got a long way to go, but at least we're getting there. Yeah, I'm sure you would agree that it's we're farther down the road than we were when you were in grade school, high school, and college. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But still, like you said, the road is very long and we still have far to go. But progress is progress. And right. whether it's a little bit or a lot. So Dr. Shore, again, I thank you so much for being here with me today. We have a few more minutes before we um, need to definitely say goodbye. So I just wanted to give you opportunity if there's anything that you wanted to, to express that we didn't talk about or any opportunities that you have that you might want to plug for yourself for people to find you or follow you. All right. Well, if you want to find me, I am on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, you could also just search my name, Stephen Shore, and put the word autism after it in Google, and you'll get a bunch of links. I've also got a number of videos on YouTube, and uh, pre-pandemic, I was traveling to a different country about once a month to talk about autism, wow. uh, 51 countries uh, in total. Uh, now that we're all online, uh, sometimes I've spoken in as many as four countries uh, in a month. Wow. So I don't know if that quite counts in really being there, but you know, <laughs> that's the best we have for now. Right. And so, I, sorry, go ahead. And I think uh, another important aspect about autism is the, uh, uh, the incredible diversity that we see within the autism spectrum. Uh, it may be diver too diverse for its own good. Uh, because there's such a wide range of people that we find inside of autism. And when they took away the subtypes in 2013 with the new DSM, uh, perhaps an autism diagnosis just by itself has less meaning than it did before. And really all it does is let 
somebody know that, well, we may have someone who has differences or maybe challenges in communication or social interaction, not necessarily deficits, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily less, but differences in these areas. And so therefore, what we can say is that if you've met one person on the autism spectrum, you've met one person on the autism spectrum. Right. Yes, and, and that is so incredibly true. I did have several people during the month of April who have autism. And then I have, like I said, a couple of students in my book that have autism. And while there are similar traits, right. nobody is identical to anyone else. And so to pigeonhole and say, well, everyone with autism is this or this is very wrong and does a disservice to the individual. And in my work as a, as an IEP coach, as an education consultant, you know, our law that directs us, what's the first letter? What does it stand for? Individuals. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Writing an IEP. What does the I stand for? individualized so we need to remember no matter who we're dealing with right that they're an individual and whatever the category that you might put that person into they're still an individual within that category right so i'm sorry this is i i sometimes squirrel off into things you mentioned all these different countries that you have visited how are people with autism treated around the world better worse about the same as here in the united states well what i find is that um, in some countries uh there's uh, there still needs to be a lot of work on awareness of autism so that people can understand it and accept autism and eventually work towards appreciating uh, what autistic people can bring to uh, bring to the community so uh but what, uh, what I do find very interesting and encouraging is that no matter where I travel, even in places where uh, you think there's no resources and there really aren't any resources, uh, what, is, what I find is that there are always pockets of best practice or near best practice hmm. uh, in unexpected areas. And the way it usually begins is that it's a parent. So you're going back to the parents. It always starts with a parent is that they start a program, maybe with a couple of other parents uh, for their own kids. And they do their research and they do a pretty good job. And then other people find out about it and it becomes bigger. And in some cases it becomes internationally known. So for example, there's Our Sunny World in Moscow, in Russia, and uh, not a place you'd expect to find a state-of-the-art uh, facility. Right, uh, no. There's one in India too called Action for Autism. And uh, similarly, started by a parent. And if we think about all of the big autism organizations that we know, and uh, being a little bit US-centric because that's what I'm most familiar with, uh, Autism Society of America was founded by a parent who also mm -hmm. founded the Autism Research Institute. Autism Speaks was founded by, well, not parents, but grandparents, but I think that's close enough. Yeah. And then, both Action for Autism in India by a parent. Uh, the Ann Sullivan Center for Students with Disabilities, another state-of-the-art approach, or I should say a program in Lima, Peru, where there's no resources. Uh, again, 
started by a parent of an autistic child. And likewise for the Our Sunny World uh, in, uh, in Moscow, started by a dad, which is a little bit unusual because usually these things are started yeah. by mothers. Right. Uh, there's a few dads who get in on it too. That's amazing. That's so wonderful to hear that there are other options around the world and that um, it is expanding and our awareness and our acceptance is growing. Um, thank you so much for all your wisdom and insight today. And I so very much appreciate getting to know you better today. It's been wonderful. Um, I hope that you have a great rest of this uh, year. I'm, I'm guessing that the school year is over or getting, getting close, close to it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just about in, heading into finals. Yeah. Um, but that 2021 treats you well and um, that like things that. continue to go well for you. And again, I just, I can't thank you enough for being here. I've so much enjoyed talking with you and learning from you. And I hope that our audience has as well. I think we had some technical difficulties. I streamed to three different places and I think one of the places was not connecting correctly today. And that's normally where my live visitors join us. So I apologize that we didn't have any outside comments to add to our day, but I, I'm actually glad because then I got to keep all of your attention and I got to ask only the things that I wanted to ask. So <laughs> I appreciate all of my, all of my guests. And I certainly appreciate any audience members, because of course I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you. That's the whole point of this is to help broaden other people's perspectives and, and reach people's hearts, because I truly feel that that's the only way we're going to change society is if we reach people's hearts to see that some of those biases that they've developed over their lifetime aren't correct and need to be changed. So Dr. Shore, again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Anyone who's watching in the replay, um, join me next week. I have Purely Patrick and the week after that is escaping me at the moment. I'm so, so sorry for that, <laughs> but I've got people scheduled that you want to, to come and listen to. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.